Well, good morning. I want to welcome you here this morning and those that are joining us live stream, just welcome. And I'm going to have you rise this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer. Let's stand together. And I don't know, there's been so much uh, information coming at us here in the last little while about uh, what's happened in the residential schools. And so the next uh, three days, we're going to go into a, another time of prayer and fasting, uh, specifically. Like we're, we're joining the Mournville Church for 40 days, but uh, we've got three days here. And so Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, you can join us via stream or in person for those evening services. And one of the things I want to focus in on on Monday night is this whole area of repentance and how profound that is. And when we consider, you know, some of the things that have happened in our past, what we don't realize is if we don't resolve what's happened in the past, they haunt us in the present. And we really want to see us move forward. And I, I just feel as a church community, uh, even though maybe not our local church, but we as Christians, you know, need to ask for forgiveness for the way, you know, we treated an indigenous people in our nation. And so we need to pray, God, forgive us. We need to humble ourselves and acknowledge where we have wronged. You know, the, the worst thing you can do is try to cover up. I mean, you know, that never gets you anywhere with the sin issues in your soul. You have to bring them into the open and ask God for forgiveness. So let's pray this morning. Father, we just thank you that you are a God of all grace and all comfort and you are a forgiving Father. And we thank you, Lord, that you can grant us forgiveness, even though, Lord, uh, we do, our, our predecessors obviously uh, have sinned against you in this realm with the indigenous people, but Lord, we can carry these things over by not addressing them. And so, Father, help us to address these issues in this hour, Lord. May we seek forgiveness and reconciliation, Lord. I pray that you would bring redemption out of this evil. And we thank you for that, that you are a redeeming God and that you've turned all humanity's sins. You've bore them on the cross. And now, Father, we pray today that you would, Lord, do a marvelous work of grace in our hour, Father. I pray today that you would speak powerfully into our lives as we address the issues of brokenness in our world, Father, and how we need to respond to that and the brokenness within our own souls. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I have this intense title this morning. You can see it, Swimming with the Sharks. A number of years ago, actually quite a few years ago, uh, Patty and I, uh, my wife, we, were, we went to a conference in Virginia Beach, rented a vehicle, and we drove down to Florida. We have family there. So we went for the conference, and then we decided to extend our time. It was vacation time. So we took Rachel, our youngest daughter, and then we paid to have Andrea fly to Orlando, and she joined us, and we did the great, fun experience, one of the most memorable vacations. We went to Disney World and all the things that were associated with uh, that part of Florida, you know, Kennedy Space Center and Epcot and, you know, all those wonderful places. And we, Patty had a book, How Do You Do This in One Day and How Do You Do This One in One Day? And so we were running around like, you know, great tourists the way we were. But one of the things we did was we were in Disney World and they had a restaurant there. Maybe some of you have been there. And in this restaurant, they have this huge aquarium. I mean, it's like massive. I, I don't know if it's, you know, part of the two sides of the aquarium is part of the wall of the restaurant. And you can see these huge fish, you know, swimming by you, sitting at your table. Then all of a sudden they lower these guys down in a cage. And the, and the whole thing is you can swim with the sharks. But meanwhile, they're, they're putting them in a cage, right? You know, I, don't, I don't know how happy people would be just to jump in when there's no cage to protect them. And when I, I know that not all sharks attack people, but you know, it is a little terrifying when you think about swimming with the sharks. Now, I say all of that to say this, that what I'm talking about this morning isn't literally going out to the ocean and swimming with sharks, okay? Well, it's, it's a metaphor on the fact that you and I are living in a hostile world. It's an environment that, as a child of God, to live a holy life in this hostile environment, you know, it could prove very detrimental to our spiritual well-being. And so that's why the title, Live, uh, Swimming with the shark, Sharks. 
to live a victorious life. In the first century, I don't know if you realize this, but Christians were accused of all kinds of terrible things. As a matter of fact, people who march to a different drumbeat than the rest of the culture will always be misunderstood. I mean, it, it's true. If you, if you are not a part of the dominant culture and you come in, you're always going to be paid attention to. And some of you, as a minority group, you already understand that. You come in and people look at you like, you know, what, what are you going to do? Like, what, where are you coming from? And, you know, over the years, we've traveled a little bit, and I've, I've ministered in some other countries, and we get to Dr. Thomas's hometown, and when we're there, we're the only Caucasians in the 150,000 people. So how many know that when you're different, everybody looks at you? That's just the way it works. They're going to see, what are you going to do? And sometimes as Christians, when they find out we're Christians, people are going to start paying attention and saying to themselves, where are you guys coming from? What are you about? And so in a sense, we represent Christ in this world, this hostile world of Christianity. And, and in the first century, Christians were held with deep suspicion. And Howard Marshall says the standing temptation to non-Christians is to run down Christians as evildoers and perhaps even accuse them of being criminals. And stories would circulate that Christians engaged in things like incest and even cannibalism at their church meetings. Now, how many know they got that idea? Because, you know, we were eating the bread, the body of Christ. But, of course, it's a metaphor, right? We're eating bread that represents Christ. Uh, but, you know... People hear these things and they think you're eating each other, you know. I mean, it was all kinds of rumors circulating about these, these meetings, you know. Even Tacitus, who was a responsible Roman historian, commented that Christians were loath for their vices. And you have to understand in that state environment where Rome was oppressing the world and she was ruling, even a, a gathering of people was considered uh, subversive activity. And how many know that as Christians, we like to gather together to worship God. So that was considered with deep suspicion. What are they going to do? Overthrow the government. See, there was a lot of concerns about what was happening in the early church. And we need to understand that in this regard, Today, we also find that some of this hostility is continuing on. There is a growing hostility towards uh, believers. Anybody notice that? As our culture becomes more removed from the things of God, because we're moving and have moved into more of a post-Christian time in the Western world, what we're seeing is a growing, deepening hostility towards Christian faith. And we see that. Now, as my title suggests, I'm going to try to answer the question, how do we live when we're swimming with the sharks? Or in other words, how do we live a life that will help destroy the image that being a follower of Jesus is an evil thing? Or how do we live a holy life in an unholy world? That would be another way of saying it. You know, and oftentimes, you know, the institutional church has abused and done terrible things and so the culture is justified in looking at the church and saying, listen, you guys have done terrible stuff. And it, it kind of fuels their argument that we're problems in our culture today. And so how do we overcome that? How do we, you know, basically demonstrate to an unbelieving world that Jesus Christ is truly who he says he is and that he brings about good things in all of our lives? So, how do we deal with these misconceptions and accusations? Some of them are justified, some of them are not justified. So, how do we live as God's beloved people functioning in an environment that I think is hostile to our faith? And so, I want to look at two ways. First of all, how, do we, how should we engage with the world? Peter was going to talk, and he does talk to the early church, and I believe that what he's saying to the early church is certainly applicable to our lives today. And the first thing is by abstaining from certain things, and embracing other things in their place. There are things we need to flee from. There are things we need to follow after. Paul says, flee these things. Young people, he says, you who are uh, a, a youth, flee these things. Flee youthful desires, it says, Paul says. Then follow after righteousness and godliness. So there's things we need to you know, abandon in our life, and there's things we need to embrace and pursue after in our lives as Christ followers. In order to reveal Christ's 
kingdom to a world that truly is spiritually dead to God? How can they know there's a reality if they don't see a reality in our lives? So Peter starts out this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 down to verse 17, these few verses. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now we know from the New Testament there are three things that's waging war against our soul. Number one, evil desires. Sinful, past sinful desires that are maybe still influencing our lives. And then we also are warring against a society that's hostile to God in the sense that their values are different than God's values. And then we also are warring against principalities and powers. In other words, there is demons and devils and spiritual forces. And so there's these three fronts that we're fighting a battle. So Peter here is focusing in on the internal stuff in our own soul, the evil desires that we had in the past that, you know, even though we have a new nature now, that old nature is still there and does beckon us to return to its folly. And we all have experienced that, the little wrestling match going on in the inside of us. Now, it's interesting, he starts out, dear friends. Now, that's a very uh, weak term. The tr NIV translates it that word, way because the Greek word is agapitoi, agape. That's that beautiful word that speaks of God's unconditional love for us. So agape toy is the word he's using there, and friends just seems a little anemic, especially in light of the fact that what he's already said just previously, and last week I talked about where these living stones, you know, where the God's rock stars, we have the spirit of God living inside of us, we're God's temple. How powerful is that? And because of that, it's demonstrating God's amazing love for us. And so, you know, other translations use the word beloved. And I love that term because what, what he's saying here is he says, people, he's saying, you who are loved by God, pay attention. How many think that's a little stronger than my friends? You know, just a little stronger. You know, and then he says, I urge you. That word urge there is, is like, this is an imperative. I, I'm telling you, this is what you need to do. Because if you don't do this, it's gonna, what? It's gonna wage a war against your soul. It's gonna drag you down. It's gonna defeat you as a follower of Christ. And we don't want that to happen in our lives. So he's, uh, so he's saying here, how can we go to live in, how can we live in this world when, he's, when we're basically now citizens of a new world. Notice the expression here. He says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Uh, that's very powerful language. Actually, the Bible gives us that kind of language, that the people of faith are always considered people who are sojourners. They're, they're nomads. They're traveling. They, they're, you know, it's, the, it's the picture of our father of the faith, Abraham. Remember, God called him out of a country. He called him out of Mesopotamia. He called him out of great civilization. He called him out of a world with certain values. And he said, come, I'm going to show you where I want you to go. And Abraham was searching. And the book of Hebrews describes it this way in chapter 11. He talks about Abraham as a stranger in a foreign land. He's living in tents. He's looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. So what does that tell you? Basically, Abraham is a temporary dweller in this land that God has led him to. And basically what Peter's telling you and I, listen, we're only temporary dwellers here. This is not our home, folks. And you know, sometimes as Christians, we start locking in like this is our permanent dwelling place, you know. We're trying to build our little nest here. We're trying to make it really comfortable for ourselves. But listen, we're only passing through, you know. This is, this is not where we're gonna camp. We're moving forward. And how many recognize that uh, culture has a huge impact on our lives? Matter of fact, Peter Dan, David says it this way. He's challenging us as believers to consider that this is only a temporary situation. And if we embrace the values of this moment, what will happen is it will lead to a wrong approach to life. And this is how P uh, Peter David says it. He said, the knowledge that they do not belong does not lead to withdrawal. So in other words, this isn't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm running away and, and escaping from what's happening in the culture. That's not what he's talking about here. 
but rather is to take our standards of behavior from the culture, not to take our standard of behavior from the culture in which we're living in, but from our home culture of heaven so that their life always fit the place that they were headed to rather than their temporary lodging in this world. So what, what is he basically saying? He, he's, he's basically stressing, as R.C. Sproul says, one citizenship is where one learns their customs and mores, which is true. Every one of us, we grew up in different parts of the world. We, we grew up with a different value system, and it was based on where we were raised. And, you know, if you live, you know, if you live in Asia, you develop a different way of looking at life and seeing things. You grew up in a different environment. Then you come to Canada. We have a totally different environment here and a totally different a set of values and mores. And then you, you go to Africa, and that's different there. Or you go to India, that's different there. Wherever you're coming from, it's all different and it depends on your your household values because you can be uh, a minority group in a dominant culture but you can still retain your family mores and culture right there within the dominant culture and this is what they're talking about we are shaped by this culture that's what we need to understand however having been born in a society where sin has now tainted every culture so it's not that culture is bad, but it's just that sin invades every culture. And we need to understand that once we become Christ followers, we have a new, we're a part of a new nation. We're part of a new kingdom. And we have a new culture and we have new values and we have to learn these cultures and these values. And that's not to suggest that every culture is wrong, but that within every culture, there are many wonderful things. Every culture has something to add. It's, it's beautiful. But then we also need to know that every culture has been invaded by sin and they're affected and there are negative things in every culture, including our own. And we need to understand that. And that's what we're, we're trying to, that's what Peter's kind of getting at here. He's saying, don't let this culture, that the culture that you're in now define who you are as a person. There's something greater, that you're not just a citizen of, of Mesopotamia. You're not just a citizen of Asia Minor. You're not just a citizen of Bithynia. You're not just a citizen of Rome. You're not just a citizen of Canada. You and I are citizens of heaven. And we need to understand that. And we need to start thinking that way. Because the way, what shapes the way you live is determined how you think. R.C. Sproul says, uh, the behavior of fallen people should never become the standard of right and wrong. How many say that's true? But yet that's what's happening in our culture today. That's even affecting the church today. He says, a big problem in the church today is that even after people are converted to Christ, they still take their marching orders from what is acceptable and expected in the culture. And we must remember that we do not belong to this culture. And that's becoming very uh, problematic in our, in our society today. The command here is to abstain from sinful or fleshly desires. What does that mean? You know, well, you know, it used, for some people, it, you know, they thought of it as uncontrolled impulses to do what's wrong. But in Paul's writing, that word uh, where he's, he's translating the word fleshly desires, it's really the word sarks, which is really the fallen human nature. We're not, allow, we're not to allow our fallen human nature to control how we're gonna to respond to situations in life. And so oftentimes when we think of, uh, of the flesh, sometimes we just think of sexual sins. Well, that's included in it, but that's not all of it. As a matter of fact, the fallen human nature is expressed in our selfishness and it manifests itself beyond the bodily and it also includes the social aspects of sin, you know, the way we treat other people. You know, we can be slandering or gossiping. We, have, we can have malice and hatred in our hearts. Those are all part of the sin-filled nature. That's all the stuff that Paul is, uh, sorry, Peter is telling us to abstain from. He says, don't allow these things to be what's motivating your behavior. We have to address these things inside of ourselves. Now, you know, how many know uh, if the Bible, you know, these sinful desires, I'm going to say it as this way, it's anything contrary to the will of God. Anything that the Bible challenges us about our attitudes that lead to the wrong actions, we need to forsake those things. That's what we need to look at. And I'll just give you an example. Sometimes it's not just the things we do wrong. Sometimes it's the things we should be doing. And I'll give you an example. What happens when someone hurts you 
and some hurt you emotionally. What's the response I should have as a Christian? Yes, I should pray for them, and I need to learn how to forgive them, right? But what happens when I don't feel like forgiving? You know, you see, a lot of times we do what we feel like rather than what we should do. We know what the right thing is to do, but we don't always do it because we don't feel it. But I'm going to argue that, you know, if you don't do the right thing, you'll never feel it. You know, feelings shouldn't be what's defining our actions. Not, you know, I always try to make a differentiation between, you know, forgiving somebody and trusting somebody. But forgiveness has to be granted. You say, why is that so important that I forgive this person? Because God knows that if I don't forgive that person, then I'm sinning against them. And if I'm sinning against that person back, that's one way of rendering evil back, by not forgiving. And I don't even think about it that way. But it's the truth. And any time I have an impediment in my relationships with people, it's also affecting my relationship to God. You see, Jesus says it this way in the Lord's Prayer. Father, it says, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. So if I'm not forgiving someone, what I'm doing is not allowing the grace of forgiveness to come into my life. I'm cutting that off, and that's so critical in my life. So I need to make sure that I'm doing that. I need to open my heart and give people what I call the gift they don't deserve. That's what I call forgiveness, the gift I give people they don't deserve to get. See, if you're waiting for people to ask you for forgiveness, I hear that a lot. Well, I'm just waiting for them to ask for forgiveness. You, you, might, you, you may never get uh, ask for forgiveness. You see, you have to give it. It's a decision of the will. That, well, yeah, but they don't deserve it, Pastor. I go, that doesn't matter. Uh, let me ask you a question. Do you deserve God's forgiveness? Well, of course not. It's undeserved. It's a gift that God gives you that you don't deserve. And that's what you and I give to people when they sin against us. I give them a gift they don't deserve. I, I choose to forgive them. And then eventually my emotions start to come into play because if I don't address these things, these things hinder me from moving forward. They hinder me in my relationship with God, which is problematic in my life. You know, so Peter here is explaining that we're engaged in a battle. That didn't even exist before we were believers. How many realize when you're dead in trespasses and sins, you're not dealing with your sinful nature. You're succumbing to it. You're yielding to it all the time. So you don't even know it exists. You're just behaving like you've always behaved. But all of a sudden, when you give your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into your life, and all of a sudden a battle begins to emerge between the right thing and the wrong thing. How many kind of notice that? You know, and there's part of you that, oh, I really want to please God, but there's another part of you say, you know, I really don't want to do that because I'd rather do this because I'm comfortable over here. I've always done it this way. And so there's a tension that starts building up in our life, and there's this battle that goes on. And, uh, in the, and so we realize here uh, that we need to please God with the help of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, I notice something. When we yield to God, we, we get empowered to do the right thing. Thomas Schreiner says, the soul here does not relate, refer to that Im, immaterial part of our human, the human being. Rather, it's the whole person is in view, showing that sinful desires, if they are allowed to triumph, ultimately destroy human beings. That's what happens when we lose this battle. It destroys us as a person. It destroys everything about our lives. That's why we have to address these things. And having said that, two things quickly come to my mind. Number one, if God asks me to do something, then God gives me the power to do it. Can I just say that if God tells you to abstain from something or not to do something, you have the ability not to do it. Because you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You have more power now to say no to sin than you ever had before. You have the ability to overcome. Isn't that beautiful? Number two, the second thought that comes, which is simply, how do I go about doing it in a practical sense? Because sometimes you go, well, yeah, I understand it in theory, but what about in practice? Well, I find it fascinating that not only are we told to abstain, but we're also told to engage. Notice what it says in verse 12. He says, live such good lives among the pagans. Do the good things. In other words, these are the things you don't do. These are the things you do do. You know, remember Paul says, flee, follow. You know, you abstain from these bad things that are part of the sinful nature, but now you engage in doing the right things. He says, 
He says, do such, live such good lives. Do the right thing so that the people that are not believers, the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they're going to see the good deeds and glorify your God on the day he visits us. In scripture, we find a principle or a law of displacement. So what I mean by that is, when you and I do the right thing, because when we turn away from sin, it's not just that we get empty of sin. We turn away from it, but we got to turn towards something else. You can't just empty the house and not fill it with something else. you got to put something else in there. And so the opposite of the wrong thing is the right thing. And so you stop doing the wrong thing by doing the right thing. And I think that Paul brings this out so beautifully uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read a few verses. I'll show you this principle at work that not only do we say no to sin and yes to righteousness, but we say, I'm not going to do these things. Rather, I'm going to do these things. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. See, you know, a lot of times you go, well, yeah, but I really enjoyed sinning. Yeah, I know, but they're deceitful desires. How do you know they're deceitful? Because they always lead you into brokenness. They always lead you into a fragmented life. They always are self-destructive, and they destroy relationships with other people, and they also are negative to society, and they also cut us off from God. How many? That's what I call deceitful desires. They're just sin-filled desires. And then you, he says you, you turn away from those things, and he says, but to be made new in the attitude of your mind. So you've got to change your thinking. That's what repentance is all about, renewing. And then put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, holiness is not only being set apart for God, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's also wholeness, W-H-O-L-E. It's an interchangeable idea. So here we were broken by sin, but when we come to Christ, God wants to bring wholeness into our lives. He wants to repair the broken places of our soul. And, and it takes time sometimes because some of our lives were pretty shattered by sin. There was a lot of brokenness. God wants to heal that. Then it says here, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Now how many know it's impossible to be telling a truth and the lie at the same time? can't do that. You're either telling the truth or you're telling a lie. He says, stop telling lies. How do you stop telling lies? Just start speaking the truth. And how many know when you start talking the truth all the time, you never have to worry about what you said? See, if you're telling a lie, you better start really having a good memory because you're going to have to keep, up, keep it up, right? But if you're telling the truth, you don't have to have a good memory. You just got to keep telling the truth. Real simple, you know? Then it says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. and Do not give the devil a foothold. In other words, don't allow your emotions to define your actions. That's powerful. In other words, give thought to what you're about to do. Because most of the time, we just emotionally do something without thinking. Gets us into all kinds of trouble. He says, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So what is he saying? You who have been taking need to learn how to earn something in order to give. So how many know giving is the opposite of taking? Anybody figured that out yet? So he's changing your action from, I'm taking something that I want, now I'm working to give something I want away to something that they need. That's a whole different behavior. Then he goes on, do not let unwholesome talk uh, come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. What do we tend to do? We're talking about some situation and we're upset, we get frustrated, so we, then we become extremely critical, right? And we can be a little bit condemning at times. We can, we can speak down. But he says, don't let any, you know, we always think of unwholesome talk. We always think of vulgar language, but it's not really that. Unwholesome talk means it's not encouraging and affirming. It's not helping the other person. You know, a lot of times people already know they're doing the wrong thing. What they need is a little bit of help to do the right thing. So, you know, when you're correcting someone, correction is good, by the way, but we need to do it in such a way that it motivates and inspires people to do what needs to be done. You know, so you're helping people. You're, you're doing something to benefit them, not just because it's annoying you. A lot of times we are saying things because we're annoyed. I got my hand up. Okay. How many here, can you, isn't that true? You say things because you're annoyed. 
when what we should be doing is going, it's not about me. You know, the new nature says it's about them. And so instead of just being annoyed, what can I say that will help them? It'll benefit them. It'll meet their need, not just make me feel better. And I see that this is happening a lot in, in our attitude towards other people. I could just keep going on and talk about it. This happens in families. This happens in churches. This happens regarding uh, the people who lead us in our country. We're all annoyed about something, and then we just, you know, and I'm going, does that really do any good? You know, I'm just pointing that out. How many think this law of displacement? I'm just telling you, it's the law of displacement. I mean, you're gonna, if you want to behave a certain way, or are we going to change and let this new nature have its way? We don't want to behave. Like, everybody can criticize and complain. We're all pros at that. That's the culture of this world. But can you imagine somebody speaking well of, building up, encouraging, and strengthening? Now, that's a different kind of person. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd rather be around these people over here. That's just my opinion. You know, I want to be this kind of a person. I believe God's calling us to be this kind of a person. That's what I'm telling you. That's the new nature. You know, it's fascinating to me that Peter goes on to say, hey, listen, if you're doing the right thing, you know what? What's going to happen? The unbeliever, even though they've been criticizing you and you keep doing the right thing, you know what's going to happen? They're going to glorify God in the day of judgment. You see, I want you to think about it. Here's somebody, let's say, that's saying nasty things about you, and you only do nice things for them. What's going to happen if you just keep doing nice things to them? It, it really kind of bothers them. It will bother them a lot more than if you retaliate and do nasty things back. Then that'll justify their behavior. But if you're doing really nice things back, pretty soon they start going, you know, I don't know about this. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. It might raise a question. Maybe they're not behaving the right way. I think everything Peter's saying right here, he heard from Jesus. Well, when did he hear this stuff from Jesus? Well, you remember Jesus was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said this, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So Jesus knew that if we were going to follow him, that we would be living in a hostile realm. How many understand this? The world has never changed, folks. The world will always be hostile. And if the world is not hostile to you, it's maybe because you are too akin to the world. That's a very deep thought. If you went home and meditated on that, you'd go, if I'm really living the Christ life, I'd probably have hostility coming at me to some degree. Okay? Now, he says, rejoice and be glad. We're supposed to be happy that when that happens because your reward in heaven is great. Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying when you really live the Christ life, there will be people who criticize you because you'll be different than everybody else and they'll be hostile towards your difference. And you have to expect that. It'll happen. Guarantee it'll happen. You start treating people nicely and you bless them and do good to them, uh, people are not going to know what to do with you. That'll throw them. And he said, that's the way they persecuted God's prophets who were before you. And then he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, how many know salt has amazing properties to it? Number one, salt brings cleansing. Number two, salt brings savor or flavor. Salt is a preservative. But how many know, you ever put salt in a wound? Ouch. It's, it brings a little pain, Right? So sometimes as Christians, if we're really salty, we're going to bring a little flavor that's different than what they're used to. We're going to enhance their world, but we're also going to bring a little bit of pain, cleansing, you know. So they're not going to always appreciate salt. But he says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, that's the value of salt. Don't, don't, don't diminish who you are as a believer. That's what Jesus is saying here. How can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. How many know if you're traveling and there's a community built way up on a high point, all the lights are going to be seen for miles around. Now, if the city's built in a valley, you may not see that town until you're right on top of it. But if it's built on a high point, everyone's going to see it. Then Jesus says this, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Nobody goes, oh, I'm going to turn the lights on now. I'll turn that little lamp on and put it underneath the bed. Well, you don't do it that. He says, that's not why you have a light. 
He says, no, instead you put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. See, as, as children of God, you and I were designed to enlighten the culture. But if we become silent and we don't, you know, we don't speak the gospel, we don't, we don't live the good deeds, we're not living the life that Jesus told us to live, we're not doing our function. See, I think, what we're, we're, I think what's happening right now is we're getting confused a little bit as to what our function is. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your what? Your good deeds. And glorify your Father in heaven. So we have to ask ourselves, what are the good things that I'm doing that people are seeing that's helping them see God? Because that's, isn't that what Peter's saying here? He's back to verse 12. He's saying, so that they would be able to do what? Uh, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing the wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Oh, I tell you, Peter sounds like Jesus. Well, it's because he heard Jesus. He's just repeating the message. Take a look at the second way that we're to engage with our world. The first is by abstaining from our sinful nature, sinful desires, and embracing the good life, the good deeds, the right behavior. We're doing the right thing. We're displacing our bad things with good things. The second is by living a submitted life. Well, who do we submit to ultimately and foremost? To God. See, when I'm a true child of God, I've surrendered my life to God. And when you think of how Jesus is teaching us to pray, one of the petitions in the Lord's prayers, your kingdom come, your will be done. Isn't that true? But that's not what's happening in our culture today. One of the main values of our current culture is self-expression and personal freedoms. Isn't that what we're advocating? You know, I was reading a blog by Mark Clark. He's the lead pastor of Village Church. He was talking about cultural shifts. And he's, he kind of wrote this blog, but he said he was really adapting from a book by Mark Sayers called Disappearing Church. And he was basically saying that these are how the culture shifted. Listen, a little later on in the blog I was reading, they were saying, hey, Mark, we've been here for, he's saying that this is relatively new. He goes, no, we've been at this for like the last 30, 40 years. And I, I, I kind of agree with his people that are saying, good blog, but this has been going on for a long time. This is not new stuff. Okay, so what was he saying? He said, this is how people are thinking in our culture today. And it's, but what he's basically, Mark is saying, it's gotten worse, and I agree with him. How I feel and what I think is the deciding factor of my reality and thus the reality around us. Now, what he means by that is this is how people are looking at life today. They're looking at it through a lens. This is the current cultural lens. And what that really means is simply this, that traditions, regulations, and social ties that somehow restrict freedom and happiness and self-expression are now being deconstructed or destroyed. In other words, anything that would limit me from doing exactly what I want to do is considered terrible. And I'm looking at this through a lens of I want to be totally free. I want to be free to do whatever I want and have nobody say anything to me. That's the cultural reality we're living in. That's where people are at goes on to say the world they see the world as it'll get better because of progress technology and education and we've moved away from addressing problems and issues through facts science objective conclusions that apply to everyone no that's not the way it works anymore everything we've moved from objectivity outside of ourselves to what subjectivity it's all within ourselves so we're living now within ourselves and saying, this is the current reality. Anything I don't agree with, for me, it doesn't apply. It's, this is my world. This is, you know, we use the word, this is my truth. Well, there's, that's where people are living. They're making decisions based on that grid, that value system. And then he goes on to say, we now make decisions based on subjective conclusions and how we feel about a certain thing and its impact on my lifestyle. That's how we're deciding. And he says, and for the first time in history, the church, even among Christians, is used as a tool of personal fulfillment rather than saying, I'm part of the church for the good of society or for the good of others. People now select churches based on personal fulfillment. If you meet my needs, I'm here. If you don't, I'm out. I'm gone. You know, 
I will listen to you as long as you're saying what I agree with, but the moment you say something I don't agree with, I'm out of here because you're not telling me what I need to hear. And so I'm going to tell you how dangerous that is. Because if you and I live like that, that means we can never be corrected. And if we're going in the wrong direction, no one can stop us because now we've made up our mind, this is how I'm going to do things, and I just go headlong in that direction. And at this moment, I'm going to tell you where our culture is at. It's like head smashed in buffalo jump. We're all headed for the abyss over the cliff. And so I'm going to say right now, we have to have something outside of ourselves, some objective thing to evaluate ourselves. Otherwise, you know, we'll just be living in a state of total self-deception. And the problem is everybody else and not me. And that's where everyone's living right now. Everybody else is the problem, but it's not me. Now, Peter's going to challenge this stuff in what he's about to say here. First of all, we're to live a life of submission to those in authority. Already we're bristling. Some people are bristling with this because we don't like authority. Peter says it this way, submit yourselves, and then he tells you why, for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Why does he say that? Who created authority? Well, God did. Okay? Now, I'm going to say this right up front, a little caveat. Yes, I do agree, many authorities have abused their position of authority. And that's what's created so many problems for people. But that does not mean I can throw the baby out with the bathwater. I can't do that. Because who's the ultimate authority? God is. And when I refuse to accept any authority but myself, then I'm rejecting God's designed authority. So he says here, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right, for it is God's will that by doing good you silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So what does it mean to submit then? Submission, this is Warren Worsby, and I like this. He says, does not mean slavery, doesn't mean subjugation, but simply the recognition of God's authority in our lives. We recognize there is an authority, God. Also, God has established the home, human government, and the church, and he has a right to tell us how these institutions should be run. God's the one that created them. We didn't create the home. God did. We didn't create the church. God did. It's his idea. We didn't create the state. God did. It's his idea. Okay? God wants each of us to exercise authority. But before we can exercise authority, we must be under authority. So the people who abuse authority either have never really understood the nature of it. Here's the biblical nature of authority. Authority is serving. You see, God demonstrates for us what real authority looks like. You know, if I'm a parent, what am I doing? I'm serving my kids because they're incapable of caring for themselves. It's a role of authority, yes, but it's also a role of serving. You know, God serves us. How many know God's our biggest helper? He's helping me every single day. He's the one that brings consolation and grace and mercy into my life just like he does you. He's, he's not only the one who's over you, but he's the one that's lifting you up and serving you. Thank God for that. You know, think about, um, you know, if, if I'm really functioning correctly as a pastor, I'm serving the people. If I'm really functioning correctly as a political leader, I'm serving the people I'm leading. We're here to serve that's the nature of leadership. But, you know, sometimes leaders, I would probably say, leaders are always going to make mistakes. Why are leaders going to make mistakes? Because they're human beings, and they're going to make mistakes. There's only one person that never needs to change. That's God. He's unchanging because he's perfect. The rest of us all need to change in this room. Shock of all shocks. You know, you may think you've arrived, but I hate to burst your bubble. You've got room for improvement. So do I. We're all needing to change because we are unlike God in some specific spot in our lives. All right. So then he goes on to say this. Warren Worsby, I love this statement. He says, Satan offered to our first parents was freedom without authority. But what they ended up was losing both freedom and authority. And the prodigal son found his freedom when he yielded to his father's will or authority. We have to be under authority in order to have freedom. 
it's, a, it's almost a conundrum, isn't it? It's a little bit of a mystery. It's a little bit ironic that you have to yield to authority in order to be free. We have to yield to God in order to find freedom in our lives. We have to, you know, there's a safety in this. When children yield to their parents as an authority and honor them, they actually find greater freedom than when they're in rebellion against their parents all the time. That's not freedom. That's, that's painful for everybody. Now, I'm going to give a caveat. The only exception when you and I should actually not do something that an earthly authority is asking us to do is when they violate the ultimate authority's command to that individual. In other words, you and I should never do what God forbids or what God tells us to do. We have to obey God rather than men. That's the only time. But let's go on here and say Peter gives us the reason why we should submit. He says we should do this because, well... For the sake, for the Lord's sake. God is the one who designed leadership. And whenever we have people rebelling against leadership, what we end up getting is everybody doing their own thing. That's another word for anarchy. Now, how many here can honestly say, you know, Pastor, I've read the book of Judges. Anybody ever read the book of Judges? Okay, you want to know, I'll give, here's an assignment. If you want to understand what anarchy looks like, read the book of Judges. It's only 21 chapters. And it'll teach you all about anarchy. And what you're going to learn is that the Israelites are rebelling against God. And God lets them have the consequences of their rebellion. And it's the worst, gruesome, terrible book in the Bible in some ways. Because you see the effects of anarchy. And you know what the theme verse is? And it's repeated twice. Once in chapter 17. And then the very last verse of the book, chapter 21, verse 25, says this. In those days, Israel had no king or no authority. And what happens? Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, when everybody gets to do what they want to do, guess what happens? The sin nature kicks in. And everybody's just doing whatever pleases them. And there's a lot of carnage. Isn't that true? People are going to get hurt. And it becomes, you know, might is right. Who's ever the toughest gets their way and the rest of them have to suffer. There's a lot of oppression, a lot of problems. And you see it all through that book. So what does God say for us to do as believers with those in authority? Well, he tells us, first of all, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority. First group you need to pray for. Why? so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That's the reason we're praying. We're praying for those in authority so that we can experience these wonderful attributes in our time. You know, it's not a rebellion against authority. What we need to be doing is praying. And by the way, when I read the Bible, the majority of the time the people of God are under uh, a leader, it's usually an oppressive government. I don't know if you guys noticed that under Rome, under Babylon, under Persia, under this, under that. You know, it's very few times that Israel was on their own. They were usually being oppressed by somebody. Isn't that true? And when Peter was writing this, he was telling them to submit to the emperor, who, by the way, was not Jewish. He was Roman. Thomas Schreiner says, by submitting to government, Christians demonstrate that they're good citizens, not anarchists. Hence, they extinguish the criticism that those who are ignorant of those who are ignorant and revile them. In other words, if we're, you know, if we're always rebelling against the government, they're going to say we're the problem people on the planet. Which leads to my sub-point, which the one I'm sure is going to get a few of you going, but I want you to think about what I'm going to say here. The argument that we're advocating for political freedom, and that's why we're in rebellion against those in authority, I believe is an untenable Christian position. In other words, you can't have that position. I'm going to explain to you why. Just give it to me. A little moment here. Don't get excited. Listen to what I'm going to say. I think we're confused a little bit between spiritual freedom and political freedom. Okay? Political freedom. If, if, if political freedom is the grounds that Jesus and the apostles are arguing for, then Jesus would have, would have supported the zealots. Because they were, they were after political freedom. You say, well, no, no, but those guys were in revolt. Those guys were killing people. I'm saying, be careful how you protest. You know, one thing leads to the next thing. Listen, Jesus was advocating for the promotion of the gospel. Why? Because he knew that there was a greater bondage than even the bondage of being in an oppressive political system. And which is what bondage? 
It's the bondage in the human soul called sin. And I'm going to say something. I find it fascinating when I study the New Testament. You guys might get excited about this statement, but, you know, indirectly, and, and pe- we've been accused of this by non-believers. They said, you know, Jesus and Paul never, you know, Jesus never spoke about slavery. Paul seemed to tolerate it and even advocated that, and we're going to see in the very next verse here, and even Peter says it, that the slaves were supposed to submit to those that were their masters, and it almost seems like they're advocating slavery, but which they really were not, but in a sense, they weren't trying to overthrow that wrong system at that point. That's very fascinating to me. Why am I saying all of this? Because I think sometimes we get so locked into, these are social ills, we need to be crusading against these things. These are the things we should be fighting against. And what I'm arguing today is, that's not necessarily where we should be spending our time. We should be dealing with the deeper problem of culture, which is the issue of the bondage of sin that's keeping the world in captivity. Think about it. If you're a slave in the first century and you come to Christ, Paul calls you Christ free man. Even though you're in an institution that's kept you under oppression, you're still free on the inside. Meanwhile, there are people who are living in that system who are the oppressors, who appear to be free, who don't know Christ, and in reality, they're under a greater bondage. That's what we need to understand. So here's what Peter says now. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Folks, I'm going to just say this to us. You are either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. You're either a slave to Christ or a slave to Satan. You're a slave to something. And we need to understand that. Now, let me ask a question. We have, honestly, we can say this. We have grown up in a time unparalleled in human history. We've never known this much freedom. How many say that's true? And we've never known this much prosperity. We've never known so much good. We've never known this kind of technology. We've never lived at a finer level in human history. But you know what the problem has been? In all of this good stuff that God has allowed to happen to us, has it really brought about a greater spiritual freedom in our culture? Or have we used all of the benefits to consume it upon ourselves and never really utilized it probably as greatly as we ought to have to bring the good news to people? It's just a question I'm raising. Then he says this, show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. You know, in the early uh, first century, Edwin Selwyn says this, But the elements of escapism so often found in the ancient idea of liberty is wholly obviated or prevented by the Christian insistence on the service of God. Christian freedom rests not on escape from service, but on a change of masters. What is he saying? He's saying it's not, you know, that freedom, we think freedom means free to do what I want. No, it's the freedom to serve whom you can really choose to serve. You have the freedom to serve God rather than yourself or sin. There's the big issue, isn't it? True freedom comes as we become God's love slave, doing his will and in the process, furthering his purposes to bring about good in our society. Here in verse 17, we're to show value and honor to everyone, no matter their social status or lack of status in society. Everyone has dignity in God's eyes. When people we disagree with do evil, the temptation is to show disrespect. Amen? Yes, of course. However, we never overcome evil by retaliating with disrespect or or, with evil. Howard Marshall reminds us they're not to be despised because they're not believers, nor hated because they are persecutors, nor treated with contempt because they're of lower rank or status, but treated with honor. It inevitably follows that people are not to be regarded as second-class citizens because they're of a different race or color. So what is he saying? He's saying, look, we need to honor everybody. We need to honor those in political leadership. But there's only one person we're to fear. Who's that? Fear God. Can I say something? When you and I fear God, we'll no longer be concerned about what people think. That's when the fear of man disappears. Because we're more concerned about what God thinks. 
So I'm, I'm actually at this stage in my life where I'm saying, God, I'm becoming more concerned about that all the time. I want to understand what you're really communicating to us so that as Christians we behave properly in this hour when so many people are showing so much dishonor and so much disrespect for other people. And God is going, that's not what I want you to do as my fellow, as my, my children. That's not what I'm asking you to do. You know, Wayne Gruben, Gruben says this, while positively affirming the obligation to honor the emperor, he also subtly implies that contrary to the claims of the Roman emperors to be divine, the emperor was by no means equal to God or worthy of the fear due to God alone. I like that. He goes on to say Christians have obligations to the state, but their obligations to God and to the brotherhood of believers are higher. So how do we swim with the sharks? How do we live this holy life in this unholy world? How do we abstain from fulfilling our sinful desires well, simply, God's Spirit lives in you. You can say no to those things, and you can begin to be empowered to do the good, even to people who don't deserve it. We need to learn how to submit to those in authority, beginning with God himself. And you know when you've really submitted to God is when you're submitted to other people. You know, you can tell me you're submitted to God, but when we're not submitted to one another, we're not as submitted to God as we think we are. The only reason we wouldn't yield to those in authority is if they're asking us to do something contrary to God's word or neglecting what God is asking us to do. We are to be God's love slaves. We either are servants of God in his righteousness or we're servants of sin and Satan. Whose master are you willing to serve under? And I like what Scott McKnight says so succinctly. The entire sweep of the Bible teaches that Christians in non-Christian environments are not to be worried about changing the environments as they are to remain faithful in whatever kind of environment they find themselves in. That, to me, is so powerful. What is he saying? He says, your job isn't to change other people. Your job is to stay true to God in the environment he's put you in. And if you and I will do the right things, we will impact the environment around us. But it's not our job to change it. Let's stand. I just said to our prayer partners this morning, I said, this is the most nuanced sermon I've preached in a long time and there's a lot of information here. You're probably going, I didn't get all of it. That's probably true. You know, the good news is this goes on a blog every week, these sermons. That's kind of nice. You guys will be able to read it if you want to. There's a lot of information here and a lot of food for thought. But here's what I'm closing with. How many here say, you know what, Pastor? I, I, as, as you were speaking today, I realize I'm being challenged by the Spirit of God to abstain from sinful desires, number one. Anybody here? I got my hand up. I got convicted in my own sermon, you know. You say, what's a sinful desire? It could be a whole bunch of stuff. You know, we always think of, it could be all the way from, you know, what am I spending my time doing? Or what's my attitude towards the prime minister? Come on now. I'm, I'm really meddling here, but I, I'm doing it on purpose, guys. Because I think we got to change. We have to change and have to abstain from sinful desires. Instead, we should be saying, God, what good thing should I be doing? in its place am I really praying am I really doing the good things you're asking me to do in this time that I have the freedom to do it or is it just about I want my world to be free so I can be free to do what I want sometimes I wonder if that's the real reason why we want freedom or is it I want freedom so that I'm free to do what God wants those are good questions I'm asking how many here probably say, you know, you said some things like, I probably need to make some changes. I probably argued that there's only one person that needs never change. That's God himself because he's perfect. There's probably a few areas in my life that I need to see changes made in my life. You know, you might be doing really well. You might be growing as a Christian. Awesome. I'm, I'm your greatest cheerleader. Keep doing it. You're going in the right direction. But how many sense this morning, this is fine-tuning stuff. There's probably some things here that you probably could take home and go, you know, I probably need to do something about this. That's my prayer. And if God's Spirit has been speaking to you this morning, I want to pray with you and for you and for me that we will become more like Jesus. Because I've been evaluating my own life and I'm going, okay, if I'm more like Jesus, wouldn't I reflect more of the fruit of the Spirit? 
Wouldn't it be filled with more love, more joy, more peace, you know, more gentleness, 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 gentleness. Oh, I'm just throwing that out because I'm just noticing people are, are more frustrated, more uptight. I'm, I, anybody else noticing this? But I, I think we should be, just be a lot more gentle, more loving, more understanding. Anybody need prayer? All right, let's ask God to help us. Lord, I just thank you for my brothers and sisters. I just want to thank you for the people who are listening to me. Your love is so amazing. And Lord, if we would just allow you to have free reign in our lives, that we would be submitting to your authority in our souls, that we could actually submit to people that sometimes we don't agree with. But maybe what we need to be doing is praying for them and encouraging them and speaking into their lives in ways that maybe they would reconsider what they're doing. But if, they're, if it's done in an affirming, encouraging way, maybe we'd get more mileage than just being upset and critical. I just pray whatever it is that you're speaking into our lives, Father, whatever you're speaking to the issue in our soul right now, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill us? Would you come and show us that law of displacement? If I've been doing this, this is what I need to do instead. And you've given me the power to do it. So help me to do the right thing instead of the wrong stuff, Lord. And help me to so uh, live in such a way that the, my, my neighbors who don't know you are going to look at my life and go, wow. I really misunderstood Christianity because when I look at your life, I see the real picture of what a Christian should be. Help me to be that kind of a picture. So that when my neighbors look at my life, they go, I know what, Christi I know what Jesus looks like now and I know what Christianity should be. And I had a wrong idea of it. Help us, Lord, to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.